Hey, everybody. Welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm your host, Brandon David. For 2022, we're starting with a big one. We have Adam Bierman, the founder of MedMen, and boy, does he have a lot to say. He's a polarizing name. MedMen is a brand everyone knows, your mom knows, your grandma knows. May surprise you to learn, he says the downfall of MedMen was inevitable. They never had the experience to survive. They could not recruit the talent with the experience to survive. Very, very interesting commentary. Uh, we also talk about the future and how to evaluate MSOs, whether beverages and lounges matter at all, uh, and whether the best brands are going to be bought or, or just lose to the biggest household brand names you already know today. We also have Ben Kovacs on the show as a co-host. He offers some awesome insight as well. I think you'll find Adam to be very self-aware and reflective. He puts himself back in the shoes of the young 29-year-old that started MedMen and recognizes he did a lot of things wrong and didn't know what he was doing. Um, really fascinating, fascinating conversation in that way, guys. Uh, thanks to Adam for being on the show and for Ben for putting it together. I learned a ton. You're going to learn a ton. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. Before we jump into the show, I want to introduce you guys to a brand new sponsor on the podcast. LeafWire is a social network specifically designed for the cannabis industry. It helps businesses find investors, employees, partners, customers, and much more. I was skeptical when I created my account that we needed anything more than LinkedIn or Twitter. But since I created it, I've been surprised. My inbox is filled with a bunch of new relevant connections and a lot of deal flow without all the noise of other networks. Uh, thanks to Peter and LeafWire for sponsoring independent media. We could not do it without sponsors like you guys. Uh, go check out the platform. Make an account, leafwire.com. All right, let's jump into this great episode with the founder of MedMen, Adam Bierman. I learned a ton. You're going to learn a ton. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. Adam, so nice to meet you, man. Thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Good. And we got Ben Kovacs back as a co-host. Thanks so much for putting the interview together, man. Welcome as well to you. Thanks for having us, Brandon. Absolutely. So, Adam, your name is someone a lot of people are going to know in this industry. Um, but I want to give you a chance to sort of describe yourself. How would you describe yourself at a party? You know, how would you introduce yourself? <laughs> uh, matters what party we're at. Gotta gotta set the stage. I think for for this audience, you know, I, I would consider myself an entrepreneur, a founder. Um, I like, you know, a fancy word, I like a cannabis futurist. I like thinking about what's next um, in the mainstreaming uh, and the permanence of cannabis, uh, you know, as an industry, as an asset class, as a consumer good. Um, you know, that's something I've been passionately working on for almost 15 years now. So um, I don't know. I'm all those things. I'm a father. I'm a husband. Um I'm uh, I'm an old wise soul. I'm a young punk kid. Uh, I'm uh, a weathered veteran. I'm a bright-eyed, uh, uh, naive uh, uh, soul. You know, I'm all those things. And uh, I'm 39. I'm about to turn 40. 
uh, in a couple of months. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to what that next chapter in my life is. Um, being all the things I just said, I think I am. Uh, excited to get into all of that and the future. Um, I think we should start closer to the beginning. Can we talk about MedMen for a few minutes? We could talk about it for as long as you want to talk about it. All right, sir. I love that. Um, what do people get wrong about this situation? What 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 was came out that was just not right? Well, when you say people, like what people? Are we talking about mainstream media? Um, are we talking about clickbaity uh, articles? Are we talking about people on the inside? I mean, what investors? Um, there's so many different perspectives, right? MedMen impacted, you know, so many people's lives, um, you know. Uh, uh, and so I guess let's let's be specific. I, I'd love to get into it with you. Um, let's talk about from an investor's perspective. Let's start there. Um, you raised a ton of money. What was the uh, what was the eventual total that you raised? Um, I think over a, over a ten year span, we raised close to five hundred million dollars. And how do you think investors post all of this and the news and all the? What do you think their mindset is after going through all that money? Well, I think it depends on which investor we're talking about, right? So MedMen, you know, the concept of what would be MedMen that everybody knows now, right? That started really in 2010. Um, and so that is a journey that starts with Andrew and myself, $13,000 that we put together, um, you know, me on a beach cruiser bicycle with, you know, the, a, a myriad of, ounce, of ounces uh, uh, in the uh basket and, uh, you know, me riding that bicycle to what we would open and call the treehouse, our, our first store um, in Marina Del Rey, California, right? So from the time that we start that first store for $13,000 to the time that we're having this phone call, you know, we have, we have raised a lot of money in uh, many different buckets, right? During that time, we were really the first um, uh, uh, plant touching, uh, as, as it would be referred to, marijuana business in the country that you know, raised significant money, right? Uh, right before um, I started raising money, right? The guys that really broke down a lot of barriers, uh, you know, was it was the privateer, Brendan Kennedy, right? Who deserves a lot of credit uh, for being, um, you know, being a big reason why the industry is where it is today. And what privateer did was, you know, they put a spotlight on on the opportunity in cannabis, and then they were able to raise money and they were able to have mainstream credibility, not just because of their background, but also because they were advertising that they were not touching the plant, right? They were advertising that they were um, investing in ancillary, as, as back then people used to refer to them, the picks and shovels of the industry and a lot of brands. Um, and on, on the heels of that, um, we raised money, the first private equity fund in history to raise money specifically for cannabis, plant touching, right? Unapologetically going out there and saying, we're raising money to build facilities that grow, manufacture, and sell marijuana to people in the United States. Um, and so, for example, the first private equity fund we raised, um, you know, we generated in, in, terrific returns for those investors. Um, and, you know, I think that the investors that went through that cycle um, were, I, I would hope, were very happy um, with the fact that we were the first of our kind investing uh, in a manner which was first of its kind, and we were able to generate those kind of returns 
um, for those investors so quickly, right? And on the heels of that fund, we launched the second private equity fund. Um, and most of the assets in the second private equity fund end up rolling into MedMen, uh, what would be the public company. For those investors that invested in the private equity fund and um, you know, uh, uh, were able to uh, create liquidity uh, the first you know, year or two of MedMen being public or first year and a half of MedMen being public, I'm sure those people are very happy. Um, you know, and then we have, you know, once we went public, right, uh, we have a period of time where our stock goes down a little bit, then it incrementally climbs up and passes, uh, passes, you know, where we listed and we, we reach all time highs. Um, and then it just drops, right? The bottom falls out. Um, and, uh, you know, I, eventually I end up departing, um, you know, and, and nothing has really changed much since. Uh, and so for investors that invested at the end of that cycle or at the end of that chapter of MedMen's history, you know, um, I'm sure a lot of them are, are frustrated that, uh, you know, it didn't create returns. They lost or uh, if they haven't sold yet, they're losing, um, you know. So I, I guess maybe one of the, the when you say, what do people get wrong? I mean, I think one of the big one of the big reasons I'm, I'm doing this show uh, with Ben, but also why I'm going to start talking about this story is it's not about what people got wrong. I think there's just so much to learn, right, from this decades long journey as we transition, you know, cannabis from, you know, behind dark glass, you know, with armed, scary people at the front, right, to mainstream, Main Street America, right, that decade. There's just so much experience, so much we learned. Um, and so much that whoever is going to shepherd this into what's next, there's so much for them to learn from, right? And so I think that's what people just don't know because I've never spoken about it. Nobody has. Um, so there, there's a long answer to the question, but, but I hope that that context is helpful. It's a great answer. Let's go back to the point where you said the bottom fell out. Um, why do you think that is? If you look back, are there things you would do differently or... You know, why do you think that happened? Well, something like that, you know, a, a company's stock going down the way that that stock went down, right? It's not one thing that happens. It's a lot of things that happen. Um, <clears throat> looking back on it, you know, it's, it's, it's half, you know, there's, there's a large responsibility placed on my shoulders. Um, and, you know, my inexperience um, being at the helm of that type of a machine um, with all those moving parts and, you know, specifically the inexperience in the public markets um, and the people with uh, uh, that I was able to or that I ultimately did surround myself with, you know, and their inability to help us navigate those public markets, you know, um, uh, effectively. You know, I think that's a big, it's a big one. But ultimately, I think, you know, the biggest is just that we were first at everything. And almost every time that, you know, we knocked down a, a door or a wall, um, you know, it, it scraped us up and sometimes it bloodied us up and sometimes it created real injury. And, and ultimately, right, the, it's, it, it all adds up. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's part of the story that's just inevitable or was inevitable for us at that time. Um, and, you know, whether that's right or not and whether, you know, what percentages or whatever it is, you know, who knows, that'll that'll be history. But, um, you know, we 
we definitely, we had a lot of successes and, and we accomplished a lot. And, and along the way, we put ourselves in spots that, you know, we would ultimately not be able to recover from. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked about sort of the people around you and the board and advisors. Um, at the time, did you realize you needed more help? Did you ask for it? Or is that hindsight? No. <laughs> um you know, one of the things that we were unapologetic about almost from the beginning in this concept of mainstreaming marijuana was that it wasn't just about putting, uh, inviting retail on Main Street America. It was also about bringing in mainstream talent, mainstream executive talent um, to the industry. Uh, you know, there's this concept of, you know, having seen the movie before. And, you know, we were making so much up as we went along, right? Because everything was first because we were dealing in, you know, uh, a federally illegal business that was, you know, transitioning, right? So um, with each of those first, right, we couldn't look around and find people who had recently or historically done what we were doing. And so, you know, we were making a lot of that up as we went along and we were learning along the way and making adjustments. But then there's this more macro environment of just dealing with the public markets and dealing with a stock, um, and dealing with public markets investors, right? And whether we're a tech company or a cannabis company or anything else, right? There are just some, you know, fundamental truths to operating with excellence in that arena. Um, and, you know, I was never able to be successful in bringing in talent that could help us with that. Not because I didn't want it, believe me. Um, it was because when we went public, we could not find there was not in existence a headhunter that recruited for fortune 500 companies that would work with us we went to everybody and they wouldn't they they wouldn't take our business Hmm. um and even you know circumventing that process and then needing to build our own internal recruiting department and actually reaching out and getting those you know those executives from mainstream industries, right? Reaching out and having those conversations and meeting with them, they wouldn't take a job at MedMen. Um, and MedMen was the most, you know, uh, was the most realistic job that they'd be able to take at that time. But crossing over to cannabis, leaving a, a job and a career path in something mainstream to come to cannabis at that point, even if it was to work for the first of all of it, the first Marijuana Unicorn, the first public company of its kind, the first in all the markets we were in, and the first, I think, to really treat it the way we treated it. We couldn't get them to come over, right? And, and what we ended up getting, which at the time was, was a breakthrough, right, is we got what I would almost call like that mid-tier or second-tier level talent from those mainstream industries, um, which at the time, it was definitely a huge step forward. But if you see where we're at now, Right. With those people that are, you know, running the industry side of cannabis, right, the, the, the biggest market cap players. Right. Those people are all people who are excellent in that field. Right. Maybe they wouldn't have necessarily been able to knock down all the doors and all the barriers we did to create the opportunity. But with the opportunity having been created, these are people at their core that are excellent at. It. Um, and so I think what you get is you get kind of us knocking down all these barriers us not having the experience, the know-how, or even the, the, the talent around us to be able to effectively navigate those public uh, markets waters. And then you have these other groups emerge who are experts at it. Um, and, you know, as unfortunate as that is for me, as I sit here talking to you today, because it meant the end of my MedMen journey, 
Um, and unfortunate as it is for all of us who are holding MedMen stock, myself included, right? How much of that is just inevitable, right? Um, and how much of this is about, you know, the evolution in our mainstreaming of marijuana, ending of prohibition, and, you know, the prominent place for an industry going forward. For sure. Ben, you've been around uh, a lot of big companies, NorCal, GreenWave, et cetera. Do you, do you agree? Is there the support? Was there the talent necessary to be successful? Well, I think, I think we, have to, we have to remember what it was like five, 10 years ago when Adam was starting in, in, in the, the middle of all this. And if, if you remember, the market wanted uh, multi-state operators and they were giving credit to the number of states you were in and the number of stores you had. And what that did is it obviously created a perverse incentive to not focus on necessarily running the optimal business and instead give the market what they wanted, which was to spread yourself very thin and go into a lot of states. And in a lot of ways, Adam was placating to the market, in my opinion, and giving them what they wanted. So they would in turn, you know, give him what he wanted, which was more investors and a higher stock price. The other thing that I think happened, which I don't know if a lot of traditional investors really understand how important this is, is there's a very limited pool of people who can buy these publicly traded cannabis stocks. You know, banks are not buying them. Most hedge funds are not buying them. People with LPs. Um, like venture capitalists and people like that who take money from Stanford Endowment Fund and things like that, they're not buying it, right? Because they're not allowed to uh, buy them um, and they don't want to risk buying it. And so what happens is when you created a large company like what Adam did, where you have options for employees, you have all these early investors who put money in before you went public who had shares in the company, when they go to actually turn their investment into liquidity, into dollars, which is very easy, let's say, in a publicly traded tech company that trades a lot of volume every day on the NASDAQ, you don't have that opportunity in a stock like Men Men. And so what you have is just this massive forced selling pressure every day where people are trying to unload their shares and there's simply not enough buyers who can scoop those shares up. And I think, you know, more than anything, those two forces, in my opinion, probably played to, you know, the, the downwards, consistent downward slide of the stock that, that we saw um, as much as, you know, the bad management and the things that Adam Adam's talking about right now. And has that environment improved very much? I mean, as an investor, how do you look at these companies, these different MSOs and decide, is this board adequate? You know, I, I guess more generally, how do you pick between these MSOs, Adam? You know, how, how do you decide what's a good investment without giving exact investment advice, of course, on the show? <laughs> uh, I mean, I think, I think that it's, it, the question is over what period of time you know, I think the opportunity to invest in public in, in cannabis public equities today is phenomenal. I think that this is the best investment opportunity um, in the history of, you know, cannabis investing as we know it, as we're talking about it. I think it's a better time and better opportunity than um, at the beginning of the Canadians trading on the TSX, you know, back when, you know, what would be Bedrican and Canopy were at a dollar. Um, I think it's a better time than back then. Um, you know, I think it's a better time than the, the first rush or bubble, right? That was, you know, MedMen and all of the companies on the heels of MedMen, right? You're at a time where the market is significantly depressed. You've got companies trading at cash or, you know, in some instances, less than cash. Um, you know, you still have, you know, a very kind of immature understanding 
um, of what these companies are actually doing. And you have an arbitrage that everybody will admit to existing. Yeah, if this if these companies were federally legal or they traded on a domestic exchange, of course the you know the value would go up exponentially. So if you believe in the inevitability of that, right, you're buying into an arb um, that you know people spend their lives chasing. Uh, it's just that fear that people have, right? Of oh, well, what if this happens? What if this gets derailed? Look, you know, the end of prohibition has been something, of course, it's been set. I'd say since back, you know, during Vietnam protests, right? This is happening. We are at the one yard line. The one yard line might take the longest. It might be the most painful, but we're right there. And so, you know, when, when I'm looking at these public equities, you know, and 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 I am investing in them, right? My my our project. Uh, for last year, which was more of a proof of concept project for us out in California, Coastal, right? We traded Coastal for public equities, right? In parent company, um, a $56 million deal, right? That's us putting our money into one of these businesses and saying, I'll trade it for your stock. Um, and parent company's got a stock that's literally trading at cash or less than cash on an exchange to Ben's point that nobody can invest in on the Neo exchange in Canada. Right. But that's a company that, you know, has a couple hundred million of revenue before they even bought Coastal, you know, plus a path to profitability, you know, plus a war chest. Um, and everybody will admit, you know, trading on the New York Stock Exchange, that company's worth significantly more. Um, how much patience do you have? What's your time horizon? So, you know, I look at these companies, I think that, you know, those people that are currently at the top of the game, um, as far as the public companies go, you know, I, I think, you know, the Boris and, and Ben and, you know, Kim, who I've, I've never met, but I have a lot of respect for what she's done. And I think the Harvest acquisition for her, you know, finishes them off and puts them in that in that class. Right. These are groups that have proven they are built for this time frame. Right. Um, in this in this piece of history. Right. They are built to sustain however long it takes between the one yard line and the finish line, right? Once we get into the end zone, you know, ask me a new question of who to invest into, right? Because I don't believe that you'll, that those same people will be the same people, same board, same executive talent, right? That is going to be optimal post being in that end zone. But to get us from the one yard line to the end zone, you know, those, those are the groups. They're not going away. Um, and they're all trading, in my opinion, at heavy discounts. Um, any second tier companies that you're excited about or that you respect people, ones people maybe don't know the name of? On the public side? Yeah. I think that, you know, people would consider parent company like in that second tier, right? They, they were one of the SPAC groups. Um, <clears throat> so I, I do like how... How under I like the value um, in their stock, um, but as far as like what you know, we consider like the micro ones, under hundred million dollar market cap uh, companies that exist, there's nobody that I like. But but I do believe that the the biggest upside exists in investing in one of them that makes it, and by that I mean you know out of those you know 100 million dollar sub 100 million dollar market cap kind of public cannabis companies that are out there the majority of them i do believe will go away um i believe that 
you know, this 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 unrealistic expectation from investors that there's no go dark scenario for marijuana businesses is ridiculous. Um, these are operationally intensive businesses that, yes, if you know what you're doing and you're an expert, you can make a lot of money at and create a real profitable enterprise. But if you don't, it's just as easy to go the other way. So I think that a lot of them will go away. Um, and then I think a few of them will figure out how to combine with each other um, and and radically transform themselves into something that's very attractive. Um, and uh, I think those have you know the biggest upside potential. Um, do I have any by name that I'm willing to talk about? No, I'm hunting and seeking them. If anybody knows of them by name, please share them with me. Mm-hmm. Um, as retail investors, often the only information that you have to go off are maybe like interviews and articles and and quarterly reporting. Um, I heard you say that you don't think the reporting is particularly good in cannabis. Um, what's wrong with it? What do they need to do better? Well, I hate saying better because I feel like that's just so judgmental, right? Um, and I don't want to be judgmental. I'm not okay, about differently. This, right? What should they do differently? Yeah, I, I think where does it evolve to next, right? And and why hasn't it evolved there yet? And what forces will 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 get it there, right? And I I firmly believe that. Where it needs to evolve to next is these companies need to be reporting by vertical, right? Ben Ben, Ben spoke about something earlier, right? This this push for for me as a CEO of MedMen to be in as many markets as possible, right? This concept of a multi-state operator. What a ridiculous concept, by the way. Is Nordstrom a multi-state operator? Just what a silly term. Um, But nonetheless, this is how these cannabis companies have been measured by the analysts who set the targets, right, and write the reports that retail investors read. Um, and so, right, they've been incentivized to, 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 to go ahead and expand into as many markets, right? And at the end of that run, they are now incentivized to have as much cash on the books against um, the most profitable uh, uh, enterprise uh, uh, uh uh, EBITDA they can get, right? So now uh, analysts are saying, okay, you're in all these markets, you have all these states, you have this revenue potential, and you're running across the country at a 21% you know, EBITDA margin. Good job, right? So it's evolved to there. Where it needs to evolve to next is, I want to know what it costs GTI to grow a pound of weed in Nevada. And I want to know what it costs GTI to grow a pound of weed in Florida. And I want to know what the gross margin on the retail product is for Cureleaf in Nevada, right? Nobody is asking these numbers of, you know, these organizations, um, and that's okay. And as a result, these organizations are not offering up these numbers, right? But that's that perverse incentive that Ben talked about earlier. It's just the evolution of things. But as this gets more mature, right, I'm of the belief that verticality is inefficient. I've been through it. You know, when we talk about everything, all this experience at MedMen, right, we were the first MSO, right? Um, And there's a lot of benefits to being in multiple markets. But, you know, we also learned that you shouldn't be in all the markets. Um, You know, we were the first vertically integrated MSO, right? The analysts love that. The street, the investors love the concept of vertical integration. But having done it, I'll tell you, it's it's not the future. It's not efficient. And there's a real there's a there's a reason that, you know, you'd be hard pressed to find any other supply chain in any major industry that's completely vertically integrated. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's how do we evolve from 
you know, this company did a billion of revenue and 22% EBITDA to this company did a billion of revenue and they did 300 million of revenue out of cultivation, 250 million out of manufacturing, 450 million out of retail. And then here are those specific numbers. Because what we'll find as investors then is who's truly excellent and what are they excellent at, right? And that's who we, I want to invest in. Because I think what you'll find once you get un under the skirt of these companies is just the industry and these organizations haven't evolved for, far, uh, far enough to actually be excellent yet. Um, and maybe some of them are excellent at one of those verticals, but I think you would find most are not excellent yet at any. Um, and I think, you know, that's part of what happens once we get into the end zone, right? But between now and the end zone, the more, um, the more transparency we can get in regards to how they're actually executing, right, the clearer it is as investors as to, to who the right investments are. Um, that, that's very well said, by the way. Go ahead, Ben. Did you have something? I just think, I think that the way that Adam is saying that is, is very true. And what's happening is people are they're experts at only one part of their business and they're hiding the rest of sort of a inefficient organization in their numbers. Right. And once that's broken out, I think it will be easier to specialize and trust. And I, I don't think people want to invest necessarily in the, these big conglomerates that are not efficient. And, um, you know, we're seeing that, seeing that, and I think more and more now, where investors are starting to step away and they're starting to invest more in these specialized software companies and ancillary plays and little things that are, you know, part of the the landscape because they understand it and they're having a hard time actually discerning, you know, a lot of the California growers from each other or a lot of the multi-state operators from each other that are the big boys. And um, you know, I think that leads to a question that I have, which is, how do we as investors, in your mind, Adam, really? start to discern the difference between GTI, Verano, Leaf, and, you know, Jushi, right? I mean, they all look so much the same when you look at them on paper, they have different revenues, they're all in different states. But even me, who I think really understands the space has a hard time sometimes figuring out where to put the money and you end up just investing in, you know, the index fund or something because you're like, I can't tell the difference between these guys. Yeah, I get it. It's super hard. I mean, MSOS is just the bet, right? Uh, you know, uh, you can do all the brain damage you want, but if you believe the end of prohibition is around the corner and you believe domestic listings are imminent, um, unless you've got some kind of edge or, you know, some special um, understanding, right? To your point, MSOS is probably a great bet, um, which is what I think you're referencing there. Uh, you know, how, how do we how do we distinguish between the companies that you just mentioned? I, I don't know, because, again, right, the reporting, um, it just it's just uh, it lacks so details. Um, so, you know, how have I decided to make my own investments in these public equities? Well, one is uh, I, I did invest in MSOS <laughs> because I came to a similar conclusion uh, uh, to you. And then, like my recent example with taking the coastal, I mean, the, um, the parent company paper is, you know, just assuming they're all equal. <laughs> I know that sounds horrible, but as a baseline until somebody can step up and show me more, I think, I think I have to have that skepticism as an investor. So let me just assume that the parent company's operations are similarly uh, efficient and effective as to GTIs, as to Curas, as to whoever you want to put in that bucket. And then I look at them and say, okay, now where are they trading? 
right? Um, individually within the context of the broader group. Oh my gosh, how is this one trading? It looks what, 200% less? Like what, what's happening? Why is this one so much more? This one's so much less. And what you'll find is like, example, in that time we made the deal apparent, like trading on the NEO exchange, you know, you just have a lot less volume than Curly, right? That trading all over the world now, right? Has followers and investors for many years and is more easily accessible both in the US and, you know, uh, globally through the CSC, right? So, you know, you go, wow, that's a real weird moment in time where the bottom fell out of parent company. And, you know, even for them to get back on par with their, you know, with their peer set, it's, it's a five or 10 X. So, you know, I've been looking at it, just comparing them all equally and saying, you know, where, where are the deepest discounts being applied? And if I can't find any reason um, that that discount should have been applied that way, I'd be more attracted to, to those. Um, but until people start breaking some of this stuff out, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how to be more thorough than that, Ben. Uh, I'll ask you the question. Help me. <laughs> Do you have an answer? I, um, you want to go on? Well, I mean, look, we've come to the same conclusion, right? Which is play the big boys and play the end of prohibition uh, with MSOS. It's the simplest, least brain damaged way to do it. Um, you know, I've been saying for a long time, and I, I felt like I got a lot of heat for this because I've always been saying that picks and shovels were going to be the thing that made the money in this industry. But when prices of flour were crazy last year during COVID, a lot of people looked at me and were like, yeah, you don't, you don't think grows are the place to be. You want to be an ancillary, like clearly all the money is in growing weed for $400 and selling it for $2,500. And it was tough to argue with. Now, with the market actually changing and flour actually changing, uh, the prices significantly changing, I think that you know, you're starting to see more investors pick up on that tune and start to look elsewhere where they're not subject to this constant price compression of flour. And I believe we've actually hit a tipping point where flour prices are never coming back to where they were before. Of course, you're going to have your three, $4,000 a pound exotics, whatever's hot for that last 5% of the market. But I mean, I think a lot of the growers are just going to pack up and go home next year. They're not going to replant their outdoor crops. A lot of the mixed light producers are going to walk away from what they're doing. Um, and now that it's so corporatized, uh, for lack of a better word, around the country, people are not going to stop growing who are in an investor-based environment. So if you've taken in $40 million and you built an indoor grow, you're not just going to turn it off because the prices are low and your margin went down. You're just going to keep pumping out product and not, not stopping, right? And Oklahoma is going to not, not stop growing. And now you've got Michigan that's growing and you've got uh, New Jersey coming online and New York coming online and Florida's growing like crazy right now. And more of these people are leaving California and going to those states and starting to grow. And so I'd be very worried if I was someone who was, you know, really tied to the price of cannabis, because the other factor, of course, is they're not stopping the black market. I mean, the, 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 the um, desire to lock people behind bars, lock them in cages for selling weed is, is gone, going away in the, in the United States, right? So you have the thriving black market combined with a massive overproduction around the country and soon the world. And I believe that, you know, a lot of the biggest brands are going to be built outside the, the flower market. They're going to be built in ancillary. They're going to be built in software. Dutchie, Jane, Puffco, I mean, even Cookies, not a flower brand, right? They're contracting flower grow and they're building a lifestyle brand and selling $55 million a year of clothing. So anyway, I don't want to belabor the point, but 
I'm looking at those type of plays, Adam, to your question of, you know, an MSOS for, you know, make sure I cover the bases and hopefully get that lift when there's uplisting and beat the institutions there and front run them the same way people did it with cryptocurrency early on. And then focus, you know, the, the seed investments and the, uh, the rest of the money in these more precision plays on the outside of cannabis for picks and shovels. Yeah, you know, there's a question earlier, you know, what what did I learn? What have I done wrong in my life? And then I, I couldn't give you the 94-hour answer. Um, but one of the things that I, you know, it's, it's visceral, like that I really was wrong about um, was I was so passionately committed to believing that what we were doing at MedMen was part of a zero-sum game, right? Uh, I believed for a period of time that cannabis retail would be a zero sum game. There would be one dominant winner. I really believe that. Um, and in, in, in that same vein, right, I believed, you know, picks and shovels were an absolute waste of time and, you know, direct, like all these absolutes and all of these, you know, um, musts forever. Uh, and, you know, as I've had time to reflect over the last couple of years and, you know, and I and I I'm continue to try to process and learn from all of this. You know, one of my takeaways is that cannabis. Um, I don't believe any. You know, I don't believe any of it's zero sum. Um, and I don't believe. You know, just like I don't believe any of it is just a slam dunk. Oh, this has no. You know, no potential of going to zero. Right. Um, I I also don't believe that. You know, any of it is automatic. Um, I believe it's right in the middle. I believe that for excellent operators um, and for people with great, you know, business plans and execution, there are fortunes to be made. I think there are fortunes to be made as growers. I think there's fortunes to be made as retailers and there's fortunes to be made, um, you know, as investors, as CPG brands, all of it. And that's not something I would have been singing a couple of years ago. Um, but I've seen it. Right. I think it's what are you going to do with it? Right. This concept of, you know, I'm a great cultivator and I can grow for this much a pound. And over the next 10 years, I'm going to make this much money. We're in a, a we're in a part of the history of this industry where I think people that are building their own businesses for the next 10 years, their likelihood of success is almost nothing because of what you said, corporatized. Right. There is no room. That's like, let's go open that small bookstore. We always wanted to, Ben. Where do you want to do it? Like. It's not happening anymore, right? Um, and I think it's the same thing with weed, but you know, if somebody's building out grows in California and they've got contract manufacturing deals with some of these brands you're mentioning like cookies, right? And they can package that up once we get across the finish line and they can sell that production to a, let's call it a mainstream, you know, a Fortune 500 company that's getting into the category now, maybe there is a fortune for them to be made. Right. But if they don't understand that it's about building it for the future, they think they're building it forever for themselves. I think that's where there's almost the absolute of, you know, it's going to be very hard for it to work out. Let's talk about brands for a second. Um, a lot of these MSOs are benefiting because there's limited competition in their markets. And there's this narrative, at least in California, that they're all going to buy the California brands. Um, and yet there's still very little brand loyalty in this industry? I mean, there's only a handful of names people, anybody knows. Do you see that happening? Are these companies going to build? Are they going to buy brands? Are we all kidding ourselves over here? Yeah, sorry. I think I think most of that people are kidding themselves. Um, and I, that's one I'm going to stick to for now. Um, 
You know, it's something that the data, right? Part of being first at MedMen was, I, you know, we were the first with the data set that we had. Millions of retail transactions, right, where people were giving us all their information as they were required to by law. And we had the, the business intelligence software and team to analyze that data, right, and be able to tell us what actually was going on with consumers, not what people were talking about on Instagram, but what they were actually doing with their wallets, right? And one of the things that we learned, that I learned, that I was beaten over the head with is there is no loyalty when it comes to these brands. There might be, <clears throat> there might be um, name recognition, right? Hey, people know this name, people know that name, um, <clears throat> sorry, but there's no loyalty, right? We had so many times where we were out of certain product uh, uh, a certain brand, but we had others in the category and we got to track not only what consumers did that week, that month, but over that year. Um, and we, we found that it didn't matter. And, and when, when things went out forever and they were offered down the street or, you know, at a nearby place, people weren't leaving to go hunt that brand, right? The brand was the name on the door. Um, the convenience was, you know, the location compared to, you know, home or work. Um, and so I think that's just the case, right? I think the people that are kidding themselves, and I could be wrong, right? Nobody knows. But I think where we might be kidding ourselves is, hey, I've got a, I've got a following selling weed, right? That has a package that has a name on it. <clears throat> that's not brand equity, right? Um, I, you mentioned cookies. I have so much respect for Burner. I think he's done a tremendous, tremendous job, right? And I think that there's a big business future for cookies as a brand, Right. But if you look at mainstream America, right, as a whole, right, cookies as a brand, right, they have a very focused, you know, uh, lifestyle that they're promoting. Right. And I love it. Like even back in MedMen days, I used to go shop at cookie stores. Burner knows that. Um, I, I, I almost felt more at home at those stores. I love what they did with those stores. Um, but that's very focused. Right. When we talk about the broadest kind of mainstream um, appeal. Right. The brands of the future in cannabis, from my perspective, you want to talk about a cookie brand? It's Mrs. Fields. <laughs> you want to talk about, you know, a beverage brand. Right. It's it's Pepsi, Coke, Molson Coors. You want to talk about, you know, uh, granola or something healthy, then show me Nature's Valley. Right. Um, but but that's the future, in my opinion. Right. That's the future. And I think you've seen some toes in the water. You know, you've seen these big companies make small investments, create these these partnerships. Right. But they're not actually monetizing. They're not making any money off cannabinoids yet. They're lending their brand. They're doing research and development. Once we get to the end zone, those are the brands of the future. Those are the brands that have real equity in the households in this country. Right. And the more equity you have in the house. Right. The more share of that household wallet you're going to receive. And those are the people with the cash and the market caps and the talent. Right. In my opinion, that will be what's next for cannabis, right? That's the next handoff that we're waiting to see take place. Brandon, I think, you know, another point to make here is when you're talking about brands, I think almost everyone focuses on flower when they're thinking of brands, but I think the big differentiator will likely be flower versus more finished products. Meaning it's very hard to build a flower brand because there's not consistency between, you know, the different states if you're a multi-state operator and how you grow. And there's actually a, a very easy substitution effect, obviously, with flour. And frankly, people want most of the time to try new varieties and, and new strains and new hype and things like that. 
But when you overlay that against something like, you know, the vape pens or let's say a gummy for a soccer mom, when they find what they want, they're often from, you know, the limited experience that I have and limited data that I've seen are far more brand loyal and they don't want to change once they find the thing that they like. So my guess is it's going to be hard to build flower brands, but it's going to be a lot easier to build, you know, these finished product brands, if you will, that have a very specific effect. Because once you find the thing for your pain or your sleep or your anxiety that works, you don't necessarily want to just go experiment with other things. But then those people also tend to be the ones that don't buy as often either, <laughs> right? They like have a little bit once a month, which how do you build a business on that exactly? I think that's true on the recreational side. Like again, not to pick on the soccer mom, but the soccer mom who bought, you know, a vape pen two years ago when it was to get quote unquote high you know, you always hear the story, some, some person comes in the dispensary, they buy a vape pen and they don't come back for six months or 12 months. Like not a great customer if you're a dispensary or brand, but that's different, I think, than the person who's finding it for an ailment. So the person who's, you know, replacing Advil for their pain or replacing Ambien for their sleep, those people are actually extremely consistent and almost subscription style consistent where you know that they're taking that gummy nearly every night uh, to go to sleep. And, and that's repeatable. And again, they're not going to change, right? And my wife's a great example of that, right? Not she, she loves can, she doesn't go look at other drinks if she wants to buy something and she wants a specific gummy before she goes to sleep now. Like that, that's, that's a different consumer. I think that's the consumer you want if you're actually building a brand. You walked into the next question. There's huge money and time being put into beverages, into cannabis beverages. It's still 1% of the market, maybe less. Um, do you believe Adam in drinks? Is that going to be a big thing? It just doesn't make any sense to me. And it's one of these things where like, I, I, I understand how it's easy for people and companies to get excited about it. But if you just play it out, it just doesn't make any sense yet. So I get why it's, it, it's, it's exciting because the big companies that are going to be pouring and have been pouring money into the industry to position themselves for a future, right? Again, they're not monetizing cannabinoids yet, right? Started with Constellation, right? Um, and then it went through the Constellation cores or Molson cores, whoever it was up in Canada, and then ABM Bev's project, right? So look at the first big players. You have with uh, Kronos and uh, Altria, right? You've got Big Tobacco and Altria, but it's not Big Tobacco. That's really the only one with a lot of noise. Um, there was another Big Tobacco company up in Canada that that folded in, but it's Big Alcohol, but it's beer. And why is that? Well, let's look at the data. That's because where marijuana is legalized, beer sales are the most directly correlated, um, and they are inversely correlated, negatively correlated. You legalize weed, beer sales go down and they get replaced with marijuana sales. It is the same part of my wallet to the point Ben's making earlier, right? And to the point I think you're countering and I don't want to get in the middle. You guys have your own relationship, but like 90% of people in medical markets use cannabis for chronic pain, right? There are the 10% right user um, of cannabis where, you know, we're going to call that like a substitute for something pharma is how I look at it. Right. But the other 90%, um, you know, is what we're going to call chronic pain. I call those people myself, people that are just trying to live their best lives and cannabis helps unlock that. Um, so I, again, don't want to get in the middle of, of, uh, uh, of, Please of, do. of you don't guys, in the middle. Um, but I think for those people, right. How is, how does beverage make sense? Right. Beverage 
Beverage, when it comes to beer and why people have to go here first is beer is social, right? So I'm a beer company or I want to I wanna market myself to a beer company because I want to seek their investment in their partnership. So how do I do it? I say, well, it's apples and apples. You know, you sell water with a bunch of other stuff in it. Now let's sell water with THC in it, right? Oh, that's easy. Well, you know, a joint weighs nothing and I can ship it up and down California in a truck. It takes up this much space. Well, liquid weighs a lot. How much do I have to charge per per milligram of THC? Nobody thinks about distribution, logistics, storage. Why do I have to take floor space? Right to your point, it's one percent. We'll get to why it's one percent. But the floor space, everything as compared to flour or concentrates, right? It is takes up the most space. It weighs the most. It's the most inconvenient on the supply chain. And then ultimately, the social aspect. We are so far away from it. The reason beer is social for people is that they almost instantly feel, you know, like the edge came off, right? They're instantly in a more sociable position. What I I never understood, like people sit around in a group and they all start eating marijuana gummies and they stare at each other for 45 minutes to an hour and a half until they get high. Like that's not social. Right. And so it's the same thing with beverages and the on the, the true onset for these beverages. There's the time they can't get it down. Now, of course, AV InBev can figure that out. Right. I have all the faith in the world. Um, and then maybe over time. Right. People substitute beer for a marijuana beverage. Um, and maybe they like that versus concentrates or, or, or flour. Right. But that's not happening until this thing's in the end zone. Right. And then it's not happening for years after it's in the end zone because you have to have AV InBev running this. So, you know, it's one of these things like, yeah, is it the future? I mean, maybe, but there's five futures before I think there's any future where THC beverages make up a significant part of the market. Yeah. Really well said. This is the investing in cannabis podcast. I think like the simple broken down advice is like, maybe it's big someday, but like, it's not the place to put your dollars today. Like it's going to take time for people to figure this out. And there's probably not a great investable opportunity in the beverage space even today. And I think a lot of the beverage companies, they're betting on lounges. They think, oh, it'll be more social. People will try stuff. I mean, Adam, you're one of the OGs in the retail space. Do you think lounges are going to be relevant? Everybody tacking on a a smoking area to their dispensary? No, (laughs) sorry. Um, (laughs) Sorry. You know, I, I almost look at lounges similar to how I look at beverages, right? It makes a lot of sense as to why certain groups are pushing for the lounges, right? And I understand how that can be sold in a way to raise capital and get people to be excited, right? But I just, I have the, the benefit and also unfortunate, you know, position to just know these numbers cold and, um, you know, when I when I referenced Coastal earlier, you know, that was really Coastal was a project for me and Andrew to, to go out and prove that you could um, run marijuana retail in a competitive environment profitably post tax in a 280E regime. Right. Which is something that these MSOs have not proven. Right. In fact, they're scared out of their minds to have to go prove it. But I do believe that this last one yard line is taking so long and it will take some time. Right, they're gonna have to come prove it, right? So one, with Coastal, we proved it's possible, right? So um, so no problem. Um, to take a lounge, right? I almost would look at it the way that like when MedMen opened its West Hollywood store, now, you know, six years ago uh, in its current form, right? When we opened West Hollywood, we opened that to invite the world to the future of weed, 
We didn't open it to create a profit, right? We didn't, we didn't staff it because we knew what people's maximum tolerance was to be in the store without help, right? That store was a big open welcome to the world. And we had staff there for everybody who walked in. That staff was over-educated, over-trained. The place was oversupplied. It was bursting with love and energy. And there was there was definitely a lot about the future there, but there was definitely very little about how near-term profitable it was, right? To go effectively open lounges, you're essentially, you know, you're trying to shift society, right? Right now, society goes to bars. If we want to be honest about this, what we're really saying, and I'm all for this, you know, as an everyday weed consumer and as somebody who doesn't, you know, consume alcohol, right? I'm all for it. Like, let's, let's go ahead and let's take out half the bars in the country and let's replace them with weed lounges because the world will be safer, healthier, happier. And the people leaving those weed lounges are definitely people I want to hang out with. And the people leaving or stumbling out of the bars, they can go hang out wherever else, right? So like, I'm all for it. But how long is that going to take? And in the meantime, right, somebody has to make it cool to come in and do that. Somebody has to welcome people to use these lounges. The lounges have to figure out how to create systems that are profitable. And the biggest problem right now with weed versus alcohol is there are people who go to bars and they can drink a lot of alcohol and spend a lot of money. How do you go to a weed lounge? I smoke weed all day. I don't know how much weed I could smoke at a weed lounge and how much that would cost for how much I would stay there. So I mean, 20 or $30 numbers? of weed in one setting is a ton. You know, like you'd be really hot. <laughs> right. So for 20, 30 bucks, right, even the MedMen West Hollywood store that wasn't built with profitability in mind, right, that store, our ADS, our average dollar sale, I think when we opened that store, it was like slightly under $100 a person. So, you know, I'm opening a cannabis store before we even start to refine, you know, the processes to make them as profitable as possible. And people are walking in and out in some short period of time and spending almost $100. You just said it. You're going to go to a lounge and hang out for two, three hours for 30, 40 bucks. Now, I'm sure there are smart people in nightlife and entertainment that will figure out how to make that a great future. And I am going to be somebody hanging out at those places. Is that a good investment today? Are people going to have to stumble through the next decade plus to figure that out? Absolutely. In the meantime, I think these lounges are great opportunities at brand building exercises for bigger companies. Got it. Um are there sectors that you think are underappreciated or that you're focused on, you know, something that needs to be built in the world? What, what's missing from the industry? In cannabis? Mm -hmm. I guess in life in general, you can answer however you want. <laughs> <laughs> what's missing in life? The biggest thing missing in life is that as we grow up, we are not we do not have information coming to us from the grownups in our lives, honestly, um, without shame. That is the biggest issue in life because if our parents would just be honest with us and tell us all the ways they fucked up and all the reasons they didn't get everything they wanted out of life and all the experience that led them to where they were, just think about how much more prepared we'd be, right? If society was just more honest about what was going on, that's the biggest issue in life, sorry. Love the that. biggest the biggest issue uh, or that needs to be solved in our industry. Um, well, it's just because you're asking me, it's personal to me is, um, you know, Andrew and I for about a year and a half, you know, we, we reset ourselves. Um, you know, we, 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 
we kind of paid attention, but we didn't really pay attention to what was going on. Um, and for us, what's next and what's needed is what we are coming back to do, which is, you know, create the, the future, right, of the experience for the future consumer in a, in a world where cannabis is legal, right? We, we did so much with MedMen, and then there was a point in which we couldn't do any more. Um, and for lots of reasons, you know, we look at what we created, right? We created the the first of everything, right? And, and we created a pathway to permanence, right? For the acceptance and the destigmatization of cannabis. And we couldn't be more proud of having created that. Um, and now it's like, what's next? What's needed is somebody needs to go create what's next. And if, if you sit here and wait around for other people to do it, who says it's going to happen? I believe what's next to create even more permanence is we got to see the crossover of those brands. It's not just Molson Coors, you know, investing in cannabis or, or AB InBev investing its cannabis. It's, you know, AB InBev um, uh, having cannabinoid products for sale inside stores. And if it's marijuana dispensaries only for the first couple of years, then so be it, right? It's them creating a new cannabinoid line, right? That's that that's only available in dispensaries in states where it's legal, right? That's what's next. How do we get these big, powerful mainstream companies and brands to come into cannabis and put their name on it? Because with their name, right? I believe simultaneous almost with that name, with their name, comes us in the end zone, right? It brings us to the end zone. That's the final piece of the end of this prohibition. So that's what's missing, right? Is 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 that final push. Um, and obviously it'll take a lot of people to make it happen. Um, everybody has to wake up to try to make it happen. But Andrew and I are gonna wake up and try to make it happen um, with the house of brands that we're building. You know, we recently uh, announced that uh, we partnered with Saucy Brew Works out of the Midwest. Um, they're a very cool regional brewery that's growing very rapidly. And uh, in normal circumstances, you know, they would be an AB InBev target. Um, that's what happens to these regional breweries as they get to a certain size, right? What we're, what we're working on and what we're executing with them is um, we're building a cannabinoid business for them. So, you know, people will not only be able to buy their beer in Michigan, people will be able to buy we keep talking about the show gummies, right, from them in Michigan that are available in dispensaries. And, you know, being able to build that brand, that lifestyle brand under one umbrella for them nationally now, right? I'm very excited about what that does to those conglomerates that I'm over here waving, going, come on, please come in, please come in, right? Um, and so we just announced that. We have, we have some other stuff we're working on that we'll announce too. But I, I think that's what's next. How do we get those groups to actually come in and participate, plant touching, participate. Um, I think that will bring the industry, um, you know, to its next chapter. So you probably had a lot of options of what you could have done next. I mean, you did the coastal thing. Why the opportunity you're talking about? Why the brewery in the Midwest? Because it's the most, well, well, first of all, um, I mean, we're still doing retail in California that we're excited about, right? We still believe very much in retail, um, but we've got our next couple retail chains we're working on. So it wasn't like we sold Coastal and now we're out of retail. We love and <laughs> we're still working on on, on retail 2.0. Um, but as far as the house of brands, you know, why the focus on that? Because that's the thing with the limitless potential, 
right? That's the brave new world, right? When we opened West Hollywood, that was the limitless potential. We didn't know what it meant, right? We just knew it was a brave new world. We were shocked when we had 100 news cameras show up, right? When the, the guy from The Prophet shows up and does a show and says, where am I? Is this a pot shop? You know, and I, I didn't know what to say. I said, I don't know, call whatever you want. I call it the future. Right. Like we opened that. That was the that was the place that I think opened the industry to this limitless future of what's next. And I think, you know, having mainstream or businesses like Saucy that are already in the community, that already have brand equity, that are already, you know, recognized, um, have them to start sell cannabinoid uh, uh, products as part of their overall offerings. I think that's what's next in regards to a limitless opportunity for the industry. Um, I don't know where that'll take us. I, I don't know. Um, but, you know, once we knock down that door, once we once we can execute on that, I think it does open up a limitless world that we don't understand yet. But it's going to be just so great for the industry. In the last few minutes, I want to just talk about the person behind the entrepreneur. Um, your name is pretty polarizing in the cannabis industry, I would say. when I when I mention you, everybody knows your name. Why do you think that is? Why do you, why do you think people are hesitant about your name? Maybe. I think it's I think it's probably three things. Um, you know, first and foremost, right? I I we started what would be MedMen when I was 29 years old, um, and so I wouldn't want to hang out with my 29 year old self. I mean, that, that, I I would find that guy obnoxious, um, and so. You know, I, we've been doing this for for over a decade, um, and the 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 version of me, right, the 29, 30, 31 year old version of me, right, um, is somebody who would be very polarizing. And in in truth, the me now, like I wouldn't want to hang out with that person. Like that's not somebody that I would think is cool to hang out with. Now, that was somebody who also was willing to go you know, get on an airplane, wait outside a congressman or a governor's office till they showed up or stalk them or city council person, you know, to have a conversation to try to push, you know, cannabis forward, right? That's the same person that, you know, uh, 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 went ahead and would show up and meet with whatever investment banker you might want to meet with and say, you know, marijuana in the U.S. isn't going to get treated any differently anymore, right? And this is how we're going to do it, um, whether you like it or not, right? I was able to accomplish so much because I was that brash, um, naive, inexperienced entrepreneur. And I think so much creation, right, happens as a result of naivete. You don't know any better. Um, and so I think like I owe so much to that version of myself. Um, but that being said, like I wouldn't want to hang out with that version of myself. So I think, you know, and, and that goes all the way up to yesterday, right? I want to be so much better today that, uh, you know, the 34-year-old version of myself, eh, a little better. Um, so one, there's that. that. That's one bucket, right? It's me. I own it. Um, two is um, what I call like this inevitability piece. Um, and then three is just the fact that this is the first time I'm talking about it. But the inevitability piece is to create what we were able to create, right? They say creation is messy. Well, to create what we had to create without even knowing it, right? We stepped on, I stepped on so many people's toes, right? And then knowing it sometimes, I extra stepped on so many people's toes. 
right? It was almost as if I was jumping up and down, waving my hands to the world saying, pay attention to weed. I remember I was on uh, Jim Cramer, Mad Money. Um, and, you know, we did this whole interview. And at some point in the interview, he asks me uh, about Oregon. Oh, I know why. His daughter lives in Oregon. And we were talking off camera about Oregon dispensaries and the industry there or whatever. And I was explaining to him that it was a it was a free market environment, right, with little protection, and it wasn't a great investment opportunity. And and on air, he somehow brought up Oregon, and I said, Oregon and Washington are horrible markets. Now, you know, at that time, my one of my primary roles was to be the spokesperson for MedMen and the industry at large. I I didn't say anything on camera. Um, or I made a very calculated effort to not say anything that wasn't, you know, um, uh, uh, thoughtful, um, you know, and purposeful. I didn't say that off the cuff. I said it on purpose. I said it because I knew it would garner attention and it would make people pay attention to this thing called marijuana, right? It would make people pay attention to what MedMen was doing, right? A story they could attach to. D -d Distinguishing for the public at that point in time, completely ignorant right, to what we all were working on. Hey, there's a difference between markets. Oh, I thought it was all the same. It's illegal federally and there's rates. No, no, no. Oregon and Washington are horrible markets. And a place like, you know, New Jersey or Florida are amazing markets. Well, there's a difference. Oh, I want to learn more. Right. So I make that statement. And does it work? Of course it works. It's the front page of CNBC, you know, online the next day. So I read that and I go, success. This is the top of the fold front page. And so you have people all over the world that are going to go, what is this all about? And if I had just been bland on that show, nobody's writing about it, right? And so there's the second piece, which is I was the spokesperson for MedMen and I was the spokesperson for this industry at large. Um, and it was never that I was thinking about being the spokesperson for me. So Nobody knows who I am, right? Nobody knows Adam Bierman, right? They know the guy that said, you know, Washington and Oregon are horrible markets, right? And I think that that person did a really great job, actually. Um, so I think there's that second piece is, you know, what I might have said publicly, them somehow, or, or people might judge me as an individual from that. And then I think there's the third piece, which is just... Because the entire time it was about building an industry, it was about building MedMen, and it was never about me as on a, on a, from a personal perspective. I made zero effort. In fact, I made a commitment never to talk about myself uh, uh, from a personal perspective. I was never that person. I never woke up, put on my street clothes, went out and said, oh, you want to talk about who I am? I would not answer questions. I never did interviews. I never even responded or disputed, you know, this sometimes salacious and sometimes very entertaining kind of caricature of myself that had been created um, because I understood it, right? Like who else would the media make of the first spokesperson for, for legal cannabis in the country, right? In the way that I was, right? That person wouldn't be somebody who goes to bed at 8.30 and has two kids and a wife he's been with for 20 years and, you know, uh, you know, doesn't like to drink and doesn't party. That, that's not who that person is. Of course, the person who's the first spokesperson for legal weed, the first billion dollar company, the first this, the first that, that person has to be the caricature they created of me on South Park, right? It doesn't matter if it was me, plug in anybody.
just happened to be me. So the third part is, you know, nobody knows who I am. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure if people knew who I was, I would still be polarizing. But right now I'm polarizing without anybody having, you know, any of that information or substance. That's really well said and very self-aware. So thank you for that, man. I, I don't know if your 31-year-old self could have answered that question that way, no? No way. No way. still a dick. <laughs> uh you said you're a, a weed consumer still um what kind of weed do you smoke you like joints bongs edible what are you into all of it um all of it, all of it. And, and when you say still um you know what's interesting is i, I didn't smoke weed when we opened the treehouse in 2010 um and i never used cannabis um, I didn't use cannabis until probably 2017, six, 17. Yeah. Um, and so there were six, seven years there where I was running around and I believed passionately and advocated for this, you know, for so many reasons, but none of them were as a consumer. I tell you what, I would have been a better 31 year old version of myself if I had known enough to have been smoking weed all day back then too. Um, and so, you know, I kind of stumbled into, you know, becoming a, a consumer uh, myself uh, about four years ago. Um, and now, you know, I, you know, I, I owe a lot of my ability to be introspective and to see things without ego. I owe a lot of that to cannabis. I think, I think if I can advocate for cannabis, I'd, I'd love to say this, which is what's so awesome about cannabis is you can, you can look at a situation with cannabis um, and really see it, right, without ego, without pers personalizing it, really just see it for what it is. But then even once you're no longer under the influence of cannabis, you don't forget, not only you don't forget how you now see that situation, but you don't forget how you process to get there. And so the next time a situation comes up like that and you go through that process, whether you're stoned or not, doesn't really matter as much. The fact is you've already shown yourself how to get there. And the more you can look at your life without ego, the more they can look at your life for what it is. My God, first of all, we have so much to be, you know, thankful and appreciative for, but it's very hard to break that habit. Just like it's almost impossible to break the habit of being in this rat race and just waking up every day and thinking this is what you have to do. Once you can really appreciate life and you can look at it the way that, for me at least, right, cannabis really helped unlock, once you look at it that way, it's very hard, you know, I would find it almost nearly impossible to break that habit. And what a gift that is. So, yeah, I am a, I'm a, I'm a big time advocate um, and it just matters, you know, I wake up and smoke sativa and, uh, you know, we go to bed with heavy indica, um, but I'm definitely a smoker. Do you shop at MedMen? Yes, <clears throat> I do shop at MedMen, um, and there's a long story there, uh, which is the fun side story. But the more direct story is that you know, down the street from my house, we have the Abikini store, which is a MedMen store, and it's just my home store. And uh, you know, I'm man, I, I drive by it, <clears throat> and you know, MedMen really started down the street because the treehouse was like a mile from the Abikini store. You know, in the treehouse was this rinky-dink, 500-square-foot, you know, dispensary um, on a second floor, you know. And then Abikini is on one of the most major retail streets in the world, glass storefront, you know, three, 4,000 square feet, just right dead center. Um, 
And man, you know, like that store says so much about this industry, where it's come, you know, what its potential is. And I don't know, I, I drive by it all the time and I love it, man. I got to go in there and hug everybody and, and buy my weed. Nice. Uh, I think that's a good place to start to wrap up as any. How can the audience help you? Um, you know, are you looking to hire anyone? Coastal needs something. It's your turn to plug whatever you want. No. <clears throat> Coastal sold. So help me by uh, by uh, paying attention to parent company. Um, uh, but uh, no, I, I think I, I'm here. I'm, I'm, it's now my time. It's my time to help, right? You know, I had such a dynamic, rich experience over these last, you know, 10 plus years. And, you know, just the ability to answer questions and share and hope that doing so as honestly as I can, you know, will help someone else that's going through it, have that information, have that education um, and be able to optimize something or make a more informed decision like that. That's all of it, man. So no, as much as I can do that, you know, if, if any of this did that, then I'm just, I'm happy that I could have been here with you guys today. Awesome, Adam. Uh, really appreciate the interview. You were open and honest and, and all we could have hoped for. Ben, thank you so much for putting it together. Uh, it's been great, guys. Thanks, Brian. All right. Thanks. Thanks, it was Adam. fun. Good to see you, bud. All right. Talk to you guys later. Bye-bye.